So let me start by saying that this absolutely wonderful weekend has turned out to be even more humbling than I anticipated it might be. And to then be introduced by saying that you know that I'm moving from one location to another location. Actually, we've already done that. And it's wonderful to be in our new environment. So when I thought about how I came to be here and what I might try to impart to you, I, I realized that it really didn't seem to have that much to do with me directly as it seemed to have to do with a number of remarkable people and coincidences that occurred at the very beginning of my career. And I thought I'd like to tell you a bit about what actually happened. To start out, I was very, very fortunate to have been born to two parents who firmly believed that a woman should, not only could have a career, but should have a career of her own. And I was also infected with an interest in science at a very early age, primarily due to my father, who was not a scientist. Both of my parents were teachers. But my father had an avid interest in biology and natural history because of his own upbringing. So after a very sort of normal childhood, I grew up in Minneapolis, I went to my father's alma mater, as you heard, Antioch College. And what was unique about Antioch College was that it had a co-op program, a work-study program, where students spend about half the time on the campus going to courses and the other half time working in co-op jobs all across the country and the world. And as a chemistry major, I was very fortunate to be assigned to a very much sought after co-op job, one in the laboratory of Professor Alex Rich at MIT. And it was there that I first became introduced to the whole field of molecular biology, whose paradigm, as I'm sure you know, is DNA makes RNA and RNA makes protein. Now, this was 1961, and it was only eight years earlier, in 1953, that Watson and Crick had published a proposal for the double-stranded structure of DNA. And it was only at that very time that people were beginning to establish the existence of messenger RNA, the middle word in the paradigm. And so this subject hadn't yet made it into textbooks, into university courses. I remember in my high school biology textbook, there was one sentence that said something about the nature of the genetic material. It said, it is thought that perhaps the substance of genes is desoxyribonucleic acid. And through this co-op work experience, I became absolutely fascinated because I realized that maybe there was a molecular basis for understanding what was going on in living cells. And it was also at that time that I first met Jim Watson, who was later to become my thesis advisor at Harvard and has continued to be a mentor and a lifelong friend, a role model for me. So when I, even during my undergraduate career, even though I had had these wonderful jobs in molecular biology, I still wondered about whether I should go to medical school or whether I should go to graduate school. And I ended up deciding I ought to go to medical school. 
And the reason when I think back on it was that I really thought that medicine was somehow a more suitable career for a woman, that it might be easier to manage, because I already knew that scientists worked awfully hard, and how would I manage to do that? And so I was about to go to Harvard Medical School, but I decided to spend the summer back at home in Minneapolis with my parents, and I got a job at the University of Minnesota in the laboratory of Joe Gall, a young cell biologist, who immediately set me on my own independent research project, and he then started packing his bags because he was about to move from Minnesota to Yale. And so all by myself, I was trying to answer a question. It was the first time that I worked in a lab totally independently. And by August 1st, I realized that I had really been mistaken as to my avocation, and that I really wanted to do research rather than medicine. And because I had known Jim Watson, I was able to rearrange sort of a transfer from medical school to graduate school. So I ended up entering Harvard and as a graduate student, and later had the good fortune of being taken into Jim's lab, which at that point was at the forefront of basic findings about protein synthesis in cells, about um, the nature and functioning of viruses. So by the time then I was, I was working in the lab, things were going well, and by the time that I had to decide what I would do next for postdoctoral work, which is something that people in this field always do, I had married my husband, Tom, who is a molecular biologist in a sense, but the technologies that he used were way at the other end of the field from mine. He was using X-ray crystallography to solve protein structures. And it was clear his being in that field that we would end up going to the mecca of protein crystallography, which was Cambridge, England. And luckily in that lab also was Francis Crick, who collaborated with Jim Watson on the structure of DNA. And a letter to Crick from Watson uh, elicited a rather prompt reply that they could probably squeeze me in. But what had actually happened was that I went to a postdoctoral laboratory because of its excellence in my husband's field, not because of its excellence in my field. Although it happened, it was also very good. And by following out one of the admonitions of Jim Watson, which is never to work on anything that you don't consider to be an important problem, I ended up doing a project that gave us some of our first glimpses into the nature of RNA and how it encoded proteins. Now, when it came time to leave Cambridge, and come back to the real world in the US and figure out what one was gonna do with the rest of one's life, I again found myself dithering about what I really wanted to do. Now, all my male colleagues were going to become assistant professors in new departments of molecular biology. They were being very much sought after here. But I had never thought of myself as becoming an assistant professor. And that was because when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student, there simply were not any women on faculties in science departments in major universities in the United States. And I confronted the situation, could I really do this? 
And the reason all of a sudden that I was being offered a job was that the women's movement had taken hold in the United States between 67 and 70 while we were away. And universities wanted not only molecular biologists, they wanted women too. But my dilemma was that I was frightened. And very much as Dr. Domello said yesterday, the reason that I was so terrified, thinking back on it, was because I feared that if I failed, I would be failing not only for myself, but also for all women in science. Luckily, my husband said, don't be silly. Of course you want a real job. And I went along to talk to Jim Watson, and he sort of soothed me with stories about the fears that he'd had when he was first an assistant professor at Harvard. And I won't tell you about those, but since he's here, you can ask him about those experiences. And so at that point, we ended up at Yale, and where both my husband and I have taught and worked independently in research for the last 21 years. I want to tell you one final story about opportunity in science. It's sort of a lesson in serendipity. And it's about how my lab came to work on these small particles called SNRPs that are the little machines in cells that are responsible for removing the nonsense bits from the RNA. And when I was trying to explain this a couple of weeks ago to a gentleman from the communications industry, he said, ah, it's like pruning dead wood out of trees. You cut out the bad stuff, and then you graft back together the good limbs. And that is, in fact, what SNRPs do in making an RNA that has nonsense into it into one that can then be turned into proteins. So the way we got into this is on my first sabbatical from Yale, uh, this field was beginning to open up, and I tried to do a project. I tried to make some antibodies against a protein that I thought might be important to this nebulous sort of um, a problem that we were just beginning to realize was one that cells had to deal with. And I tried for a long time, I failed, it was very depressing, I went off and did something else. But when I came back from my sabbatical, uh, one day a new copy of the British journal Nature appeared in the lab, and at the back of it was a short article talking about antibodies found in the blood of patients with rheumatic diseases like lupus that reacted with something that sounded like the very substance that I'd been trying to make and had failed in doing so. And in fact, people had mentioned to me during my, my previous year that there were such patients and I should really get some blood from these patients and try to investigate this, but I hadn't known where to go or who to talk to. But at the time I, this, this article came, I was, I was back in my lab and I had a new student named Michael Lerner who was an MD, PhD student. He was fresh from his medical school courses and I said to him, Michael, do you know where we can uh, find someone who has patients with lupus? And he said, oh sure, Harden's right across the street, I'll go over there. And that very afternoon he went over and got some serum 
little bits is all that's needed. And it turned out that these sera, in fact, did do what the antibodies I'd been trying to make did. And ever since then, we've been using uh, very tiny amounts, as I said, of blood from patients to try to explore the basic workings of human and other higher cells. So I've been telling you really a lot of very personal facts. And clearly, I think that there's a, a message in all this. And the messages are ones that you've heard from a lot of other people here. First of all, it's important to have a supportive family and friends. And you all know that. You have those, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And it was wonderful to hear students saying that at lunch today. Second, you have to grasp at opportunity. And it's true now that there are women in science departments in major universities in the US. But that doesn't mean that probably every single one of you, whether you're male or female, will find yourself in a situation where you're desperately afraid of failing at something, not so much on your own behalf, but because of other people that you care very, very much about. You should, as a lot of people have said here, um, you should do something that you really love doing. And when you find that thing, you should embrace it. And you should love doing it so much that it turns into a real passion. And just as I get a tremendous thrill out of having discovered something, uncovered some realization that nobody before knew, which is really the essence of science, this is the way one wants to feel about whatever one does. And again, as a lot of people have mentioned, you never really end up doing what you were trained to do. And nowadays, unfortunately, it isn't very often that I get into the lab to do an actual experiment. But the real satisfaction in what I do do now comes from sharing the joy of discovery with a lot of very talented younger colleagues, undergraduates, graduate students, postdocs. And they're the ones, in my interaction with them, that are really responsible for the successes that I have had. So I want to thank you very much and wish you all a lot of luck.